So it's my great pleasure to have Kim Keaton here with me, and we're going to talk about uh, various topics uh, of expertise um, that Kim has been running for, for years now. Kim, you and I got into a habit of sitting back-to-back in cubicles uh, for the second time in a row, so I know all about your patterns of eating, your arrival times, etc. I also happen to know a lot about your um, expertise in various technologies, but I would really like if you can present those instead of me to the our broad audience. So let's see. So what do I do? Um, I'm, my name is Kim Keaton. I'm a distinguished technologist at Hewlett Packard Labs, um, and I'm working broadly in the space of computer systems, uh, specifically software systems. Uh, you know, for for managing data, for managing resources, and whatnot. Um, most recently, I've been working on memory-driven computing, uh, and so we can talk about what that means a little bit later. But in the past, I've also worked on on things including uh, data management and information management, uh, workload characterization, smart storage, um, looking at uh, computer architecture, performance evaluation, uh, and whatnot. You also graduated from both CMU and Berkeley. Can you say a few words of what kind of great things you've done there? Sure. So I got my bachelor's in computer engineering and engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon um, long, long ago. Um, and then I decided, so I grew up in western Pennsylvania, so I was kind of going to undergrad close to where I, I grew up. And then I decided I needed to branch out a little bit. And so in the process, you know, looked at a bunch of different schools and then thought that I needed to cultivate a healthy disrespect for authority and so decided to go to, uh, to Berkeley as a grad school. Um, and, uh, and so I got my master's and PhD in computer science at Berkeley. So you mentioned this three-letter word, MDC. Uh, can you elaborate on memory-driven computing? Sure. Uh, memory-driven computing um, is a way of architecting systems that brings together some emerging new technologies, things like byte-addressable non-volatile memory as well as memory semantic fabrics. Um, and it allows us to construct systems in new ways. So, for example, um, it allows us to separately uh, scale the compute part of the system from the memory part of the system and the storage part of the system. Um, and that really opens up new possibilities. So we're not really boxed into having you know, strictly scale-out clusters or strictly scale-up clusters, but we can actually blend between those two as we need for the applications that we're trying to run. And so, you know, I think it's interesting about that and what we've been exploring in the work that we've been doing um, at Hewlett-Packard Labs is that we have the opportunity to, to combine a couple of different properties. And so one is that the memory is persistent, one is that the memory is large, and one is that the memory is shared over a fabric. And so there are different benefits that come from all of those different kind of dimensions. And so, you know, because the memory is persistent, that means that we can get rid of all of the really thick software stacks that we have traditionally used for managing storage devices um, and have you know, much faster access to being able to, to persist data. Uh, because the memory is large, we have the opportunity to have most of our data actually in memory. We can even you know, pre-compute some results that are going to allow us to better answer questions later on. And then because the memory is shared, we have all kinds of new opportunities. So things like we can actually you know, communicate results uh, or, or data through the memory rather than having to send lots of messages back and forth. We don't have to worry about partitioning data sets anymore. We can even think about you know, new ways of dealing, dealing with fault tolerance and failover kinds of operations because you know, the, the, the different parts of the system really uh, you know, are going to, to have different failure properties uh, and whatnot. So I think there's a lot of really exciting you know, new opportunities opportunities to rethink how we write software in order to take advantage of these kinds of systems. So there was so much technology there that three letters wasn't enough. So introduce <laughs> four-letter acronym, M-O-D-C. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what it is and why is it important? 
Sure. So I, you know, four, four, even four letters is probably not enough. Um, so MODC is MODC um, is what we've been calling memory oriented distributed computing. Um, and so it was it was kind of a joke name that we came up with at first uh, because we were trying to figure out how how we can actually exploit this disaggregated or fabric attached memory in order to allow us to do distributed computing things. And so there's a conference called Principles of Distributed Computing, or PODSI. So we thought that MODSI was an interesting take on this, uh, you know, on, on this. Um, and so specifically what it means is essentially how can we actually do the same kinds of things to do scaling and fault tolerance and work balancing, load balancing, those kinds of things that we do in a distributed systems today but do it in such a way that exploits the fact that we've got um, shared memory that's, that's shared across a fabric. Um, and so the idea is essentially, rather than sending lots of messages back and forth or making lots of copies of data, we can actually just use the shared state in this disaggregated memory in order to do those kinds of things. Okay, so by listening to you carefully, I realize that in some ways you've been bringing together both memory-driven computing and high-performance computing because there's a lot of parallels there. So where do you think you have been successful in bringing these two together so far? Where do you think there's still plenty of opportunity to work on? I think we're really just starting to scratch the surface of, of bringing together high-performance computing and, and memory-driven computing. Um, and, it's, and specifically, I think part of this is due to the fact that um, more and more we see it's not strictly high-performance computing that we care about. It's a, a merging between high-performance computing and high-performance data analytics workloads, those kinds of things. And oftentimes there are there are, in order to accomplish you know, answering a question, we actually don't have just one step. We've got multiple steps that are brought together in a workflow. Um, and so where I think memory-driven computing can be really helpful in that case is to allow us to, to have more efficient data sharing between the different stages of that workflow. Um, so for example, in today's systems, you know, oftentimes we'll have one system that does the calculation and, and you know, has a very compute-intensive uh, you know, sort of job that it has to do. It produces a result. And then that result, you know, might be relatively large amounts of data, but then that, that result is moved to a totally different system in order to do the analysis. Whereas today, in a world of mem you know, in a world of memory-driven computing, we could actually have all of the different parts of that workflow working on the same underlying uh, data. And so, being able to do something that people call in situ data analytics um, is one, you know, kind of a example of a, of a concrete way that memory-driven computing can help uh, high-performance computing and high-performance data analytics. You can also imagine. Um, you know, oftentimes these, these kinds of calculations really involve exploring a large space of possible answers. Um, and so there's another type of technique that memory-driven computing enables called computational steering. So we can actually you know, start our, our exploration of this space, um, and then you know, partway through we can actually look to see how well we're doing at the part of the space that we're exploring, um, and then even potentially adjust how we explore the space um, in, order to, in order to be able to more effectively answer the question. And so by, by, by being able to look at memory resident results um, in a really efficient fashion, you know, shared across a bunch of different computational devices that allows us to do this computational steering more easily. So those are kind of like the vision for how one might apply memory-driven computing to this, this area of high-performance computing and data analytics. Um, you know, and so far, you know, the work that we've been doing is really thinking about how we can enable programmers in that space to access these underlying resources. So how can you access the data in a fabric-attached memory? How can you actually then, you know, we're starting to explore some of these Mazi ideas um, for, for exploiting the, the disaggregated memory to design the, the underlying system in a more effective fashion. So there have been a lot of popular technologies lately, um, AI, blockchain, self-driving cars. 
What do you think are fundamental contributions by some of these technologies uh, and opportunities, and what are temporary fashion? That's a big question. Um, and so let's let's take each of those pieces one at a time. Uh, so AI means many different things to different people. Uh, and so I guess to me, what it means is it's a collection of different techniques that, uh, that are applied to create actionable insight from a large amount of data. And so whether that's uh, you know, sort of linear regression or some sort of a statistical technique or machine learning or deep learning, you know, all of these things kind of share with uh, you know, the, the same goal of creating actionable insight. Um, and so in that sense, you know, these techniques have been around for a really long time. They're gonna continue to be around for a, a long time because we're getting more and more data. Uh, and we need to be able to to understand what that data is telling us. Um, I think that you know techniques are evolving over time, and you know we're going to continue to see advances in that space. Uh, and so you know so this is this is an interesting area for us to to explore. I think there are, are lots of interesting questions for the implications of applying AI to a bunch of of different areas, and so we can talk about that separately. Um, blockchain. Uh, so so there. Uh, when I hear blockchain, I think distributed ledger, um, and so really the goal of allowing multiple distinct parties to come to an agreement of some sort um, in, in, a, in a cryptographically secure way. And so the notion of a distributed ledger is really useful for a number of different applications. So things like smart contracts or financial services, you know, creating new markets out of a collection of peer entities uh, and whatnot. So that, that general application I think is quite useful. As far as the particular flavor of it, you know, I'm, I'm agnostic at this point. Um, Self-driving cars, um, to me that seems like an interesting application area or challenge kind of application that is, uh, is a question um, that some of these other techniques are being used to try and answer. Um, I think there are a lot of really interesting questions in the space of, you know, of, of smarter transportation systems that allow us to bring together both you know, vehicles that can report and analyze data and even collaborate with other vehicles in order to help us to, you know, to understand the, the operational uh, environment. Um, and then also just to be able to allow us to uh, you know, more effectively tra you know, basically transport people and, and goods. Uh, and whatnot. So, you know, I think there are fad aspects of all of those different areas, but I think there are really substantive aspects of all of those areas as well. So, if these areas are the answers, what are the questions? <laughs> or um, more seriously, what are some of the key problems that exist today for humanity that uh, we as technologists should focus on? Interesting question. So as, as we apply more and more automation to understanding our data, I think there are interesting questions about how do we understand or explain how we arrive at a particular conclusion. And so really being able to break down and provide insight into how we get to that, that conclusion is going to become increasingly important as we start to apply AI techniques to more and more fields. So things like you know, making medical decisions because of looking at x-rays or uh, you know, in terms of you know, self-driving cars and being able to apply some of those techniques. So you know, having the ability to, to understand where a decision came from is, is really important. Similarly, you know, removing any sort of bias that might be introduced into, you know, into an algorithm because of training sets that are chosen and whatnot. So I think there are questions about how we wield the techniques of AI um, that, that are going to be important as we start to apply it more broadly. Um, I also think then understanding you know, more generally, uh, thinking about data and, and how do we how do we actually manage the mounds and mounds of data that we're going to find ourselves in the middle of? There's one estimate that says that you know, we're going to see 44 zettabytes of data by next year, I think, is, is you know, kind of one of the, the prognostications from the past. And so a zettabyte is a billion terabytes, so 
lots and lots of data. Um, so how, how do you find what you're looking for you know, in, the, in the middle of all of that data? How do you make sure that you keep the data around for as long as you need it, um, but then also have the opportunity to get rid of it when you don't need it anymore so that you don't have to pay to store it? Um, how, do you, you know, how do you make sure that if you need to keep part of the data private that you can actually do that? So I think there are all kinds of questions that are really interesting and hard ones around how do we manage data. You know, similarly, just about managing complexity of systems uh, and whatnot. Um, and, and so, so I think that there are, are lots of really interesting questions around uh, the new that open up um, because of the techniques that we're trying to apply, because of the the problems that we're trying to solve. So you are in a very unique position. You work in a research lab and you are influencing businesses to deliver products. But at the same time, um, I know that you have been very effectively working with universities. What are your expectations from university? What do they do and what could they be doing more to help industry? So I, I have been working a lot with universities to uh, to have research collaborations as well as to work with students to mentor them. Um, and so, you know, for me personally, what I have found most useful in those collaborations is the opportunity to explore a broader set of topics than I would have been able to explore on my own. Um, you know, in in the in the con uh, context that I work. Um, and so that's been really, really valuable, um, both from the perspective of being able to have interns come in and work with us, as well as being able to work with, you know, with students and faculty uh, back at their universities. So, you know, so from a research perspective, the opportunity to explore a broader, a broader set of topics is, is really valuable. Um, from a people perspective, you know, I want future colleagues, you know, whether those are interns, whether those are, are full-time hires. Um, you know, I, I really look forward to the opportunity to interact with students as they work through their degree programs, as well as to, you know, potentially then be able to work with them um, once they once they wrap up. Um, and so I think that that you know both of those are important roles that that universities play today. You know, I also think more broadly speaking, um, you know, it's important to be able to train people in new technologies um, and to train them about how to think about things in a critical fashion, how to learn new information. And so what I'd like to see universities be able to impart on their students, you know, is the world is always going to be changing. You're always going to have to, you know, keep learning for the rest of your life. And so let's teach people how to learn uh, so that they can always pick up on those new areas. And so that's an important, an important set of skills in addition to just the domain knowledge that they get from being, you know, part of a computer science or electrical engineering or whatever kind of program that they're part of. You have been recently elevated to ACM Fellow. That's a pretty uh, uh, high accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. I know that you're also a senior member of IEEE. How do you see these professional organizations helping you? And can you recommend to the young generations to follow your path or do differently? There's a lot of questions in there. Um, so, so I I'm a member of IEEE of ACM. You know, in the past, I've also been member of, of other societies as well. For example, the Society of Women Engineers. Um, and so, you know, for me, professional societies are really valuable in that they provide learning opportunities. You know, going back to that lifelong learning thing that I was just talking about. You know, there's an opportunity to read publications uh, of these organizations. Uh, you know, whether it's IEEE Computer or Communications of the ACM or ACMQ. Um, you know, th there's there's new information that, that that those publications can convey to a broad audience. So it's very easy to pick up one of an issue of that and you know be able to learn a new area that you hadn't really been exposed to before. There's also an opportunity to have 
really deep, uh, you know, deep learning opportunities in areas that you already know. So going to research conferences is another really great opportunity that I've found through, you know, being a part of, of some of these these professional societies, and really just you know the opportunity to meet with others who have similar interests to yours, uh, and and to be able to you know to have more deep and, and interesting conversations about those areas than you might be able to you know in, in you know your normal day to day work environment. The other day, I have seen a tweet from Grady Butch that I really like. He said, um, recently, I have started to be very deliberate about equally following women and men. Can you tell us a little bit about diversity? What does it mean for you? And how can we improve it? So I think diversity means a lot of different things. I mean, there are, there are many different dimensions. You know, it's what's your gender? What's the color of your skin? Who do you love? What do you believe? Uh, you know, so where did you come from? What, you know, where, where are you from? So all, all kinds of dimensions of diversity really matter. Um, and uh, and for me, as a, a woman in computer science, uh, you know, I am an underrepresented minority because there just aren't as many women as there are men. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's that's been interesting because um, I've I've sought out opportunities to uh, you know to be able to interact with more women, uh, just you know, to feel like I wasn't the only person in the room who was like me. Um, and so that's that's been uh, you know challenging, um, but also rewarding over the years. Um, and so. You know whether that's involvement in organizations like the Society of Women Engineers or other other kinds of professional uh, professional groups. You know have afforded the opportunity to do that. Um, you know just really wanting to have an opportunity to share experiences, to share advice, um, and to you know to find those role models and uh, you know and, uh, and and mentors really. Um, you know and so so those are some of the ways that I've I've dealt with being an underrepresented minority. And I I think that you know. People should seek out the opportunities to, you know, to, to have those opportunities to talk with folks um, who are who are like them, so that they can learn from each other. I ask you many questions today. Some you liked, others less so. Have I missed anything? Is there anything else you would like to tell our broader audience? Well, so I think you know there are, there are interesting questions about how we can democratize technology and how we can actually give more people the opportunity to understand how technology works to influence the future direction of technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope that we collectively, whether that's universities or industry or professional societies, you know, that we can uh, find opportunities to allow people to continue to learn or to, you know, if they, even if they haven't been trained in an area, to be able to come up to speed on those, on, on a new area to the extent that they can then contribute. So I guess my question for all of us to think about, and maybe I'll pose it of you first, um, is how can we actually provide more opportunities to people um, who maybe haven't been trained Traditionally, uh, you know, in computer science or in electrical engineering, uh, to to learn more about those areas so that they can contribute. I was hoping that with this podcast, we're doing exactly that, uh, and we'll be doing even more so. Uh, but there are many other ways. I think uh, all these online courses are the way. You mentioned uh, introducing uh, interns and working with them. Uh, so I, I think that uh, technology is actually through the phones. Uh, getting everywhere so people are more and more um, learning about it uh, but I, I agree with you it's our responsibility it's almost like diversity in in technology mm -hmm. some some countries some continents are still underrepresented in technology and we need to work on that so for example in IEEE we've been working quite a bit with Africa with South America uh, some some parts of the Asia so there's a lot of opportunity I, I love your observation thanks for your counter question too um, Kim, uh, it was a pleasure having you here. I learned a lot. I hope the audience 
have learned as well. Thanks again. Pleasure to talk with you as well. Today.